Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Lord, when we look to a story like this, we think of a story. And our temptation, Lord, is to miss who we are here and how much like these Babylites we are. So, Lord, help us to capture that. Help help us to examine our own hearts as we are exposed before you by the power of your word through your spirit. And so, Lord, as we examine your, your scriptures today, I pray that you would speak. And you would speak in such a way that it goes beyond what I have imagined or beyond what I have written or studied or prepared for. Your spirit would be here working in us and transforming us into Christ-likeness through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who have been with us throughout our study in Genesis, uh, you may have picked up on it already. And those of you who have read Genesis on your own, you may have picked up on this too. Genesis is filled with all of these repeated patterns And phrases, vocabulary, all these things that that move the story along. One of the patterns in Genesis that we've seen uh, quite a few times already goes something like this. Man sins, God's word comes forth in response, and then we see God's grace mixed in with his judgment. So for instance, in the garden... Man sins by trying to be like God, trying to attain wisdom on his own, apart from God, contrary to God's command. God responds in word. Then we see God's grace and the promise of a future restoration. And, and, and we also see his, his judgment there as, as the man and woman are exiled out of the garden and barred from the tree of life. In Genesis 4, next chapter over, Cain sins. By murdering his brother, God responds in word. Then he punishes Cain, but his punishment is mitigated by God's grace. Cain is sent away. He's he's exiled, but he's also protected. In Genesis 6, man sins by attempting to achieve greatness outside of God's design. God responds in word. Then he judges the earth. But we see his grace in preserving Noah and his family. So here in Genesis 11, we're going to see that pattern again. Man sins. God responds in word. Then we see his grace mixed with his judgment. Another pattern that we've seen in Genesis is this eastward movement. That's one of those key vocab words in the the book of Genesis. East. This eastward movement away from the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden to the east. And this sword-wielding cherub is placed at the east gate. In Genesis 4, Cain is exiled further east. And he settles in the land of Nod here in Genesis 11. These people 
are journeying in the east when they settle in the plains of Shinar and build a city. This, as, as we're looking at Genesis, this eastward movement is a signal from the author that the sin nature of mankind is moving us further from God. God was there in Eden, in the west. Mankind is going further and further east, away from God. Another pattern is in the structure of Genesis. So in Genesis 4, there's a lot of parallels between Genesis 4 and 11, or 10. Uh, Genesis 4, well, you'll see in a minute. So, so in Genesis 4, with Cain's family... Remember that? There's this genealogy given to us. And that genealogy from Cain does not include the, the offspring of the promise. And the people from that genealogy build a city and they rebel against God. And then in Genesis 5, after Genesis 4, we get the genealogy of the line of the promise from Adam to Seth to Noah. All right, so just think structurally back on that if you can. And then here in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, we get the same pattern. In Genesis 10, we get the genealogy of all the peoples who are not included in the line of the promise. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, there's a city and there's rebellion. And then in the second part of Genesis 11, you get the genealogy of the line of the promise from Shem all the way down to Abram. All of those patterns are not accidental. Moses is a wonderful writer and he's, he's building into the text these clues for how we are to read the text, how we're to read Genesis. And those patterns help us to read Genesis 11 as well. So how, 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 do, they, how do they inform Genesis 11? Well, despite the flood that we saw in, in chapters 6 through 9, despite the flood, there's still an impulse within humanity to rebel against God. The flood did not, it could not wipe away that sin in man's heart. And yet at the same time, God is working through human sin to accomplish his own good purposes. In other words, God is just as sovereign over humanity and creation in Genesis 11 as he was over the darkness, if you remember that, in Genesis 1. God will bring about his purposes, and he will do that. He will, he will, he will bring about the fulfillment of his, his promised restoration. He'll do that by working through the foolishness and the sinfulness of humanity. This is, that is probably one of the most important themes in Genesis. It's at least the brightest. And that theme... God working through man's foolishness and sin is repeated in almost every chapter from here all the way to the end. All the way to the very last chapter when Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God working through human sin to accomplish his purposes. But to get there, to get to Joseph, to get to Genesis chapter 50... Humanity first has to be spread out across the earth so God can call a particular people to himself. And that dispersion across the earth is going to come about here in Genesis 11 through the building of a city and a tower by a rebellious people. So I keep calling them rebellious. And you're like, what's so rebellious about what they did? To understand the, what I'm going to call the Babylite they're kind of Babylonian, but God calls them Babels, Babelites. So to understand the Babelite rebellion thoroughly, we have to look at yet another theme that we've been seeing in Genesis. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, so now, now it's time to have your Bibles. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, God gave us the purpose for humanity. Let me just read that for us. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what, what, did, what did we learn there? Mankind is made in God's image for his glory to spread his image over across the face of the earth. And man, as man rules over the earth, he does so in submission to God for God's glory. And unless we think that stopped at the flood, not so. That purpose, what we, what we call the creation mandate, is repeated in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. We saw this a few weeks ago. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah, there's the, the flood guy, He blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And unless we think that they're no longer reflecting the glory of God in their image, not so. Genesis 9.6 tells us that man is still in God's image. So, so in Genesis 11, at the beginning, we know, at the, the very beginning of our text today, we know that humanity is made in God's image. We know that humanity is made for God's glory and that their mission, their mandate, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it. So, that's the background pattern that we have coming into Genesis 11. So here we are in Genesis 11, somewhere in the east, in a place called Shinar. And these people know that's their calling. They know it. But they are conscientiously rebelling against that duty. And we see that in a number of ways in the way that Moses has written Genesis 11 for us. One of the first ways we see this, the the highlights that he's giving to us, is the way that he parallels Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. In Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But in Genesis 11, verse 3, they said to one another, come let us make bricks. Let us make man, Genesis 1. Let us make bricks, Genesis 11. Same language. And then to capture more of that, same theme, Moses tells us in chapter 2 of Genesis that God used the dirt of the earth to make man, right? For his glory, in his image. And then in, in Genesis 11, man is taking the dirt of the earth to make his bricks. In Genesis 1, God makes man in his image so that God's glory and greatness would be known throughout the earth. But look at Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. God made man for his glory to make his name known. He would be renowned across the universe through his people. These men are making a tower for their glory. Do you see the rebellion? Isaiah describes the spirit of the Babylonite rebellion like this. Isaiah chapter 14, speaking of the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The last similarity that we're seeing in Genesis 1 God commanded humanity to subdue and fill the earth, or fill the earth and subdue it. Look at what these people are doing. And the rest of verse 4. They say they want to build this tower in this city and make a name for themselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's their duty? Go across the face of the earth. What are they doing? Settling in one place. They're building this tower into the heavens in order to reach up to God so that they can make a name for themselves, which is so they can be godlike, so they won't have to be spread across the earth. Now, if that weren't enough, if that weren't bad enough, there's something else we need to see here. 
and you might have picked up on it, it has to do with the building materials that they used for this project. I know you're thinking, what, what, what about those building materials? Well, here we go. Moses is really specific, isn't he, when he tells us what they were building with. These, uh, these, these really hard-baked bricks and bitumen, I have to say that carefully, for mortar. For, for the Israelites reading this, or any ancient people's reading this, they would understand that mortar is not made of bitumen. They would know normally bit, uh, mortar is made of mud, usually with some sand and some gypsum and some lime mixed in. That's your standard ancient Near East civil engineering fair. But these Babylites are not using typical mortar, are they? They're using bitumen. Bitumen is a tar made from oil or Petroleum that has bubbled up to the surface of the earth and, and kind of congealed. So ancient Shinar had oil fields, much like modern-day Shinar, which is Baghdad, Iraq. Well, these Babylites, led by Nimrod, took this tar and they coated their bricks with it to build their tower. Now, why would they go through this trouble as, to, as opposed to a standard brick building with ordinary mortar? Well, bitumen has qualities beyond its stickiness. Bitumen is waterproof. The ancient peoples knew this. Old Babylonian ruins of boats have been found to have been lined with this stuff. Later in the Exodus, this this same bitumen will be with the same substance that Moses' family uses to coat his little baby ark so it will float down the Nile instead of sinking. Bitumen is the Babylonite version of the pitch that Noah used to waterproof the ark. The Babylites are trying to waterproof their bricks. Now think about it. Why would they want this tower of rebellion that reaches into the heavens to be waterproofed like the ark? Context is really important here, isn't it? In Genesis 6, humankind was attempting some weird sort of self-exaltation when they had their, their, their daughters married off to the sons of God. In that event, a denial of God's design and purposes was taking place. Humanity was trying to be great apart from God. And as a result of that sin, God flooded the earth to destroy all of humanity, save Noah and his family. But here we are in Genesis 11. These people know that what they're doing is contrary to God's commands. But they're doing it anyway. And as a sort of protection against God's judgment, they're waterproofing their tower of rebellion and building it with its top reaching the heavens. Why? So that in the event of another flood, this monument to their greatness and their own name will survive. It has, in their estimation, its top above where the floodwaters would be. And the bitumen mortared foundation won't be washed away by the water. These people think that they're going to beat God at his own game. It's wicked, isn't it? Now, before we get to God's response to this, I'm going to take a few minutes and examine the heart of their sin. What, what, what's behind all of this? What is behind what they're doing? And just as importantly, is there any way that you and me might be falling into their same temptations? Well, there are essentially three forms of unbelief that is at the heart, or three forms that are at the heart, the Babylite sins. If you're taking notes, write these down. The first is unbelief. In God's promises. It's going to take a minute to connect this, but you're going to see what I mean. If these people believed in the promises of God, that they would know and they would trust that God was going to bring his restoration through the appointed seed, that offspring, that promised offspring. Through this offspring of the woman, God would again reunite himself with humanity and he'd dwell with them again. Eve believed that promise. 
Seth believed that promise. Enoch believed that promise. Noah believed that promise. But these people don't believe that promise. Or at least they're not willing to wait for it. So what their plan is, is to storm heaven's gates on their own and force God to do their bidding. And so they name their city and their tower Babylon. Babylon means gate of God. That's what they're calling their tower, their city. Gate of God. They really believe that they are approaching the gate of God. God will rename their city more appropriately, as we see at the end of this text. But they believe they're building this tower, this really what is a massive temple, all the way to the gates of heaven. Rather than waiting on God to send his Messiah and reestablish his heavenly mountain city garden of Eden, that place where heaven meets earth and God dwells with man, that place that comes much, much later, right? These people are going to build their city towers so high that they can force God to come down and be with them. They want to show their own greatness. They want to show their own might, their own power, because they don't believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he has said he will do. They don't believe in God's promises. Secondly, they don't believe in God's mercy. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God, according to his mercy, promised that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. He even set his bow, his his warrior bow, in the clouds to tell the people, never again will I flood the earth because of man's sin. And yet these people who know that they're sinning, they don't believe in God's promise of mercy, do they? They don't believe that God is truly merciful. They believe he's bluffing. Instead of trusting God as he has revealed himself to be, they've assembled themselves as a testimony to human greatness and strength, and they have endeavored to protect themselves from God's judgment by fortifying their monstrosity against the flood. They don't believe in the promises of God. They don't believe in the mercy of God. They don't trust God. Now, question For us, in what ways does this thinking come into our own hearts? Let's get back to God's promises first. Let's address these in order. God promised to bring a restoration. Peace between God and man through the seed of the woman. And he fulfilled that promise. He fulfilled that promise in Christ. So the first question you is have you received Christ? Do, do you understand? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that God promised to send who would bring us rest? He is the one who would bring an end to the Genesis 3 curse. He's the one who will ultimately bring in that Eden-like union between heaven and earth. We don't have to build a tower to heaven to force God's hand. We We don't have to build a tower to heaven to force God to come down. Because of the love with which he loved us, God sent Jesus, his son, down to us. So, first of all, trusting in God's promises means... Trusting that God has fulfilled his promise in sending the Christ. And trusting that because he's faithful, Christ will return. And in Christ, we saw with that rainbow from several weeks ago, in Christ, we saw that that we have the promise of forgiveness of sins. The mercy of God for us is displayed in Christ. So do you believe in the mercy of God? If you're, if you're working and you're striving on your own to save yourself from what you believe to be the wrath of God, you're putting bitumen on bricks. 
God has shown us his mercy in Christ. He's promised us his mercy in Christ. So trust God. Trust God's promise of mercy in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Babylites don't believe in the faithfulness of God. They don't believe in the merciful character of God. And because they don't believe in the goodness of God, they don't believe it is enough to live for his glory. Because they have this, this, this gross misconception about who God is, the Babylites believe they can only be fulfilled in this life if they live for their own greatness. That's their third area of unbelief, their third sin of unbelief. They don't believe it is worth living for the glory of God. It's not enough for them to be God's image bearers. You see the connection? Their desire to live for their own glory comes as a result of not knowing God for who He is. They have far too low a view of God. Well, how do we know if this is us? How do you know if you're living for your own glory instead of God's? Well, there are some obvious markers of this. And there are some that are more subtle. So if your entire motivation in life is to be famous. If what you do is motivated by making yourself known. That could be an indicator. That you are caught up in the spirit of Babylon. So if you. Build a giant skyscraper. And you put your name on it like our former president, for instance, that is the spirit of Babylon. There's no way around it. Built a tower to put his name on it. Genesis 11, right? That's obvious. But less obvious than that is the rest of us. We don't all have the means of doing that. We We don't all have rocket programs in our own names. Right? This is, there, there are a certain group of, of people on, on the world that, that can do that. But less obvious than them is the rest of us. So, if your self-worth is tied into how many likes you can get on social media, you've been deluded by the spirit of Babylon. If your sense of well-being is dependent on making yourself out to be better than others, if your sense of success or importance is connected to the size of your paycheck or your house or your cars or whatever it is, those are Babylonian ideals. And more to the heart, if you are afraid of what others think about you, if you, if you find yourself being defensive, self-conscious, if you will lie or you will exaggerate to keep up appearances, why do you do that? Why do I do that? Because my own name is more important to me than God's. Those are common evidences, common evidences of the spirit of Babel at work in all of us. And like the Babelites, couldn't change their own hearts. We can't change our own hearts. We cannot change these sinful impulses until, until our view of God increases. Until your understanding of who God really is begins to capture your heart, you won't know the joy of what it is to live for His glory. So long as you have a low view of God, You'll set yourself on this treadmill trying to find satisfaction in this life outside of what God has called you to. And sure, you'll see, you'll see the other path. You'll see the path of godliness as an option. But you won't pursue it because you don't know God and you, you won't see the glory of God as worth pursuing. So friend, I want to challenge you. Get to know the God of the universe as he really is. How do we do that? Well, he's given us his word. He has revealed himself in his word. So read his word. 
slowly. Not as a box to check off in the morning. Don't tell your wife, I love you, just because you have to say you love her. Read his words slowly and carefully and prayerfully. And read good books about theology. Listen to them on your commute. If you don't like to read, listen to good books. We have all of the technology. All of the technology in the world at our fingertips so that we can better get to know God. Use it for God's glory. And if you want to know some good books, I'd love to talk to you about that. So talk to me. Study, study in the Gospels. Study the Gospels about how God has fulfilled his promises in sending the Christ. So if you're doubting the faithfulness of God, if you, if you don't believe that God has been faithful to keep his promises, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you're reading and you see evidence of the faithfulness of God, when you see the mercy of God, there it is. When you see the love of God, read it again and again And again, memorize it, meditate on it, immerse yourself in knowing God for who he is. And what will happen if it hasn't already, you will be born again into Christ. And the spirit will awaken you to the the beauty of the gospel. And you'll know that there is no better way, there's no better life than living for the glory of God. And so those Babylite temptations, lesser and lesser and lesser as you revel in the glory of God. The Babylonite way of thinking. We need to see in Genesis 11, this is not just a legend. This is the introduction of the spirit of the world. It's not that the world doesn't believe that there's a God. It's that the world doesn't believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be. The Babylonite spirit holds their own personal view of God as more authoritative than the way that God has revealed himself. And in the world's view because of their own image that they've created of God, God is not worthy of worship. He's someone to compete with. Not someone to love and obey. Spirit of the world, the spirit of Babylon throughout the scriptures, throughout human history, becomes the, as you read the Bible, you see Babylon Babylon as as the running alternative to living as God's people. And it's so much the case, that's so much the story of the scriptures, that by the time you get to the end, by the time you get to Revelation, you have two cities on display. One is the city of God, the heavenly city that comes down and fills the earth. The other is the the knockoff version, the cheap, man-made, artificial version of the heavenly city. And in Revelation, that city is called Babylon. And Babylon is that representative place of human greatness. It is that decadent place of human be-who-you-want-to-be self-actualization. And you read in Revelation that the spirit of the world has seduced and intoxicated kings and nations, and they are now opposed to God and God's people. And what's interesting in Revelation 18, when John describes the fall of that great city Babylon, he doesn't say, He does not say that their great tower of human achievement reaches into the heavens. Rather, John says, Babylon's sins are heaped up as high as the heavens. And so, in the mercy of God in Revelation 18, God is calling his people out of Babylon. So if you, right now, are living according to the spirit of the age, if you are living according to Babylonite principles and values, God is calling you out. Repent. Come into Christ's kingdom, the true heavenly city instead. Know the Lord for his Mercy, know the Lord for his faithfulness. Know the Lord for his love for you and live for his glory. Amen? Will you do that? Let's look back now to Genesis 11. In response to man's attempt to storm the gates of heaven, what will the Lord do? 
Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now don't miss, told you Moses is a good writer. So he uses all sorts of tools. One of the tools he's using here is irony. Don't miss the irony here. These people have built a tower that they believe has reached up into heaven. And yet the Lord has to come down just to see it. The image being painted for us is God is laying down on his belly on the floor of heaven. He's looking way down, 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 all the way to the earth with his earth microscope. And down between the Tigris and Euphrates, between those two little streams, there's a tiny speck reflecting back up at him. A quaint little pile of bricks that the children of man, he calls them. Let's see what the children have, have built. The children of man. He wants to see that little Lego tower that the, the children of Adam have put together. They believe this is the greatest achievement in human history. And it's a teensy, tiny, insignificant little speck on God's radar. Isaiah comes to mind here. Isaiah chapter 40, that great chapter about the greatness of God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Like all the entire sky, the universe is a curtain. He spreads it like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. Tempest carries them off like stubble. That's God. And here's these little grasshoppers. God stoops to see the activity of the grasshoppers on the plains of Shinar. In verse 5. Now verse 6, God speaks. Remember I told you that's how this works. Man sins. God speaks. And then we see God's grace. So here's God's spoken, speaking. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they, pro- they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And this may seem like a puzzling response, because it is to me. It's a puzzling response. What harm really? Given what we know about God in Isaiah 40, what, what can come from humanity's vain efforts at this? With this tower? They're not going to reach the heavens with bricks. The Burj Khalif in Dubai is 2,722 feet tall. The tallest Babylonian ziggurat, and that's what this is probably referring to, was about 200 feet tall. 200 feet. It's nothing. Towers are nothing. We have sent rockets to the moon. Even saying when we did that, the heavens are now a part of man's world. There's some arrogance in that statement. And yet, no judgment. Since then, since 69, we've gone further, haven't we? We have remote-controlled cars on Mars. We've collected dust from the rings of Saturn. We sent a module out of the solar system. And even with all of our confidence and all of that bluster and all of our exploration, We're no closer to the gods than they were. We're we're no closer to being gods than than these people were. So why does God respond so drastically in Genesis 11 and he didn't to us and any of our other skyscraping tower ventures and rockets to outer space? Well, notice here in 11, chapter 11, God's response is very similar to what his response was in Genesis chapter 3. So if you remember, in Genesis chapter 3, after the sin of the man and the woman, they were to be exiled out of the garden. And look what the Lord says in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, God knows, he knew then, knows it would not be good for humanity to have this fallen sin nature and have access to the tree of life right this is not good 
So God expels them from the garden in his mercy. Here, Genesis 11, humanity have united themselves against God. That's what's happening here. We've united ourselves against God. We've built a city. We've fortified the tower. We're going to battle God. And God knows this isn't good. Not because he's afraid. But but he knows that if humanity continues on their current trajectory as one people opposed to God, they will destroy themselves. It's not that God is concerned with the tower. Babylonians are going to build more and more towers. The Egyptians are going to build even bigger towers, and we build even bigger ones. It's not that God's concerned with the towers, but but to prevent humanity's own self-destruction, God in his mercy confuses their languages, language and disperses them across the face of the earth. Look at his response in verse 7. Come, let us go down there. Confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And sometimes we read this passage, we read Genesis 11, and we think, okay, the point of Genesis 11 is to tell us where all the languages came from. That's not the point of Genesis 11. In fact, I actually don't think that that's what's happening here. God confused their language. That's what the word Babel means. It means confused. It's not that here at Babel, God assigned some of them to speak Spanish and some of them Mandarin and some Russian and some Arabic. This is not the origin story of languages. We've seen how languages develop even the last 100 years. God made it so that they couldn't communicate at all. That's what's happening here. Whatever it is that this chaos sounded like, probably best seen at Pentecost. We'll come back to Pentecost in a moment, but at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, those who did not receive the Spirit heard all of the new Christians talking like they were drunk. It was Babel. That's what's happening here. A lot of yammering, a lot of stammering, but no communication. What had allowed humanity to to operate as one unified entity, has been disrupted. So they're going to spread out across the earth, and they're going to regather as their own tribes, and in those tribes they'll learn language again. But for here, this emergency needs to be dealt with accordingly, and they've got to spread. And so we've got to make them sound, not even be able to communicate with one another. He has introduced division and frustration into these people. Why? Well, it's not time. It's not time yet in redemptive history for humanity to be unified as one. According to God's decree, according to God's perfect plan, this is the point in human history, in redemptive history, when mankind is to be spreading out, making nations, subduing the earth, creating culture, glorifying God with their distinctions. The time for humanity to be reunited as one will not come until the Christ comes. A whole lot of history has to happen first. God has to call Abram. and Then he has to bring Isaac that promised child. Then he has to bring Jacob and then the 12 tribes. Then God has to show his strong right arm of redemption by rescuing his covenant people from Egypt. Then he has to show his covenant love for his people by revealing his law to them and his promise to bless the nations through them. That's how God's going to be glorified. It's not going to be in this tower. So what's happening? God cannot allow redemptive history to end at Babel with man getting the glory. So he confuses the people and disperses them across the face of the earth. The one thing that they gathered to not do, God does. Now we know this is not the end of Babel. This is not the end of the spirit of rebellion. Any more than exiling Adam and Eve from the garden ended their sinful nature. This dispersion doesn't stop mankind's rebellion but that's not the point of the dispersion 
We're going to see Babel, like I said earlier. We're going to see Babel in the form of Babylon again and again and again all throughout the Old Testament, all the way through to Revelation. But in the meantime, God has redemption to accomplish, and it's not going to be thwarted by these rebellious people. God will accomplish his purposes, even if it means working through man's sin. The beginning of the end of Babel will come later. Zephaniah prophesies that day like this. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time, that, that day to come, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, which is to say, they won't be babbling anymore. He will give them a pure speech. And what will they do with that pure speech? That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. What happened at Babel? One people, one language coming together to rebel against God. God is saying that time of oneness is not yet. It will come later when God will gather his people together as one body for his glory. That oneness of mankind, that unity is going to come, says Zephaniah, but it's not going to come in the form of rebellion. It's going to come in such a way that all these people as one call upon the name of the Lord and they serve him as one people. So now we can fast forward to Pentecost. We knew this was coming because it was our scripture reading. We always connect our scripture reading to the sermon. So Pentecost, what's happening there? God's people from all over the world, are gathered together. How many nations are there? Lots of nations. The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, which is to say Babylon. Now, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, all of them are there. And the Spirit is sent down upon them and they hear one another speaking in a pure speech. They hear one another speaking intelligibly. And what do they hear? Luke tells us. Acts chapter 2. He says they're all proclaiming the mighty works of God. Not man's greatness. They're not making a name for themselves. They're proclaiming God's greatness. God's greatness in what? In sending the Christ. And who is the Christ? I'm going to bring it all full circle now. Let me tell you who the Christ is. In Genesis chapter 28, this is coming in a few weeks for us. In Genesis chapter 28, in that passage, Jacob, who is Abram's grandson, who has to come after the dispersion, well, Jacob has this dream. And in the dream, he sees a tower. And that tower reaches all the way into the heavens. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Probably looks like the Tower of Babel. And that tower is this connection between heaven and earth, that connection that humanity wanted to build in Babel. And on that tower, angels are coming down from heaven onto earth, and angels are going up from the earth into heaven. It's a signal that heaven and earth have been reunited. That's what that vision is going to be when we get to it in Genesis 28. It's a new Eden. And as Jacob is laying there in his dream, and he looks up at the top into the heavens, God is there. And he says to Jacob, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So this new Eden, this new connection to heaven, this tower, is coming through Jacob's offspring. And through him, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, cool. Now fast forward to John. It's probably best if I just read this whole passage. John says it better than I can. John chapter 1. Very beginning of the Gospel of John, I told you to read the Gospels to see the faithfulness of God. You're going to see it here. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, this is the collecting of the disciples, says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, what's the law? Genesis so we found the promised one. We found, we found the one who Moses and the law and all the pro, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. 
and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, you are the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that Genesis 3.15 said was coming. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. This is great. And he said to him, truly, I, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus says he is that longed-for tower that, that is the connection to heaven. And, and if we're tracking God's promise to Abraham and Jacob, Jesus is saying he is the means through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of even the Tower of Babel. What man had in his heart that he so desired to do on his own, God does in his love and in his mercy. We don't force God's blessing, do we? We can't. There's nothing that we can do that can force the hand of God to give us that glory. Our glorification will only be found in Christ. Our salvation is only found in Christ. The love of God, the mercy of God, the greatness of God is all found in Christ. So the only response that we could possibly have today is to repent of our sinful Babylite tendencies, trust in the Lord's provision, and worship Christ. Amen? Let's do that in prayer and song.